Thank you, Austin. It is good to have Austin and Katie with us officially, and I, I hate that we won't be able to welcome them rightly this afternoon, but I hope next week at 3 o'clock in the gym you will be able to welcome them to our church and to our community as well. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Ryan Smith. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Arrow Heights. We're so glad that you're with us today, braving the cold to join us together. I also want to say hello to those of you who are joining us online. We know uh, many of our, our senior adults as well as other members of our church family are having to join us in that way. Uh, we, we are with you and you are with us in spirit. So we welcome you today as well. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And before we get back to our walk together through the book of Mark, we're beginning the new year with a brief three-week series on the doctrine of the church. Now, why the church? As we said last week, we are a church, having church, at the church. What more do we need to know about the church? But even in that very statement, the church is presented as a group of people and an activity and a place. So if the church is a people, what constitutes that group of people? If the church is an activity, then what is that activity and how do we know when it's being done rightly? If the church is a place, then what defines that place? If I'm a member of the universal church, do I really need to be a member of a local church? Ultimately, the question is, what does Jesus mean in Matthew 16, 18, when he says, I will build my church? Now, these are important questions, and it's important that we ask them, and it's important that we answer them in God's ways and not our own. But how do we know if we're answering them in God's ways? How do we know if what we're doing is right according to God's word, which is our authority? The church matters. And the church matters to God. And the church should matter to us. There's a lot at stake in understanding the biblical doctrine of the church, yet as has been said, the most undertaught and underexplained doctrine by the church is the doctrine of the church. And last week we took a look at what the Bible means when it talks about the church. The universal church, all of those throughout time, space, and history who have surrendered, are surrendering, and will surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord for true life and salvation. It's the Revelation 7-9 assembly of people that no one could number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the bride of Christ, the once and for all final people of God. The church. But we closed out last week by saying biblically, though individual Christians become a part of the universal church when we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, according to God's word, just becoming a part of the universal church is not where our relationship with the church 
ends. God structures the full family of God into what we might call immediate families of God. Meaning the church is not just an abstract set of ideas or people. The church is flesh and blood. The church is face-to-face, accountable, equipped, protected, and encouraged. The church offers vocalized, united, and audible praise. Just as your immediate family has roles and responsibilities and identifiers, so too does the family of God. Biblically, if we are part of the church universal, we must be a part of a church local. Our God is an organizing and purposeful God. And he has organized the church in visible, identifiable, structural, and purposeful communities called churches. These churches are what we refer to as the local church. So that's our focus today. Biblically, the local church matters. And we're going to see this biblical reality by going to a passage of scripture that is written to a local church. The book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the local church in the town of Ephesus, which is located in modern-day Turkey on the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea. And Paul wrote this letter about 62 AD, which was around the same time that Peter wrote 1 Peter, which we read last week. And to give us some context for the letter, in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, we read that the gospel has come to Ephesus. There were Christians, there were disciples there. But this gospel message was still very new. It was very fresh. People were learning what it meant to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what it meant for this diverse group of people who now find themselves as spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And in Acts 19, we read that Paul comes to Ephesus and begins to organize and clarify some of the chaos. He declares the gospel, he teaches the believers, he baptizes converts, and sees much fruit of the Spirit. For three months, Paul lives directly in the city, sharing the gospel, before he's forced to go to nearby Miletus, because people in Ephesus were pushing back against the way, as this new group of Christians, these believers, were called. Now, from an interaction in Acts 20, which follows, we learn several things about this local church in Ephesus. So let's look at that real quick. Acts 20, beginning verse 17. It'll be up on the screens. It says, Now from Miletus he sent Paul, he sent to Ephesus, and called the elders of the church to come to him. We'll skip down to verse 26. And Paul says to them, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Okay, so the first things that we learn about these individual members of the universal church in Ephesus is that they weren't left as an amorphous group. They were, however, an identified group. They were individual believers, but were organized, known, and cared for, and identified together. Notice these Christians are twice referred to as the flock. Not just as individual sheep under the great shepherd, but as a specific flock. In the Greek, this word flock is poimnion. It means a specific grouping of sheep. It doesn't mean all sheep, everywhere and anywhere, but an identified and marked group under a shepherd's care. Also notice, the flock has a known and identified group of people called overseers. In verse 17, they're called elders. We often call them pastors to describe their function as shepherds. And these pastors or elders are in verse 28 told to care for In the Greek, that's poimano, which means to shepherd. Notice the similarity to poimion, to shepherd the flock, to shepherd the church. They are to know who the church is, protect them from wolves who would seek to harm the flock physically or spiritually, and to keep a clear and watchful eye both outside and inside the church. For false doctrine that would lead members of the flock astray from the faith and from each other. And what identified this specific group of people in the church? Well, verse 32. Among all those who are sanctified. Verse 28. Which he obtained with his own blood. The organized church was made up of those who were Christians who were evidencing that they were saved, trusting in God and obeying his word. So what we see clearly from the scripture is that God has created and organized the universal church to exist in the form of local, visible, relational churches. And these churches are known and identified groups of Christians with a defined structure. And now throughout the rest of the scripture, we learn much more about these flocks. In fact, most of our New Testament is written either to local churches or to those who shepherd them. We learn what to do if a wolf starts to bare its teeth at the flock. We learn what to do if a member of the flock starts to go astray. We learn what defines these elders, overseers, these pastors, and about other roles in the church, such as deacons. We learn about the responsibilities of the flock to each other 
and what it should or shouldn't look like when they gather, which is an expressed expectation. Now, there's no way that we could go into every aspect of local church life and structure here today, which is why I invite you to be a part of our cross training on Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. as we dive deeper into biblical life together as a local church. Okay, it's important. But for now, I want us to turn to Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, which is in the middle of this letter that Paul wrote to this local church at Ephesus. And what we'll see is that there are certain things that Paul wants the church at Ephesus to remember, which also helps us today get a clearer picture of the definition and responsibilities of the local church. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urged you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the first thing that Paul wants to emphasize to this church is that the local church has unity. The local church has unity. Paul says that of first importance is the objective or united calling upon this group of people individually and corporately. That calling is to be a child of God, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But that calling is not just an individual calling. It's also a collective, a corporate calling. As Paul emphasizes, living out this calling and doing so together requires, verse 2, humility and gentleness and patience and bearing and love and maintaining unity of the spirit and peace. The first thing Paul emphasizes about this calling is that it is relational. In order for this flock, this group, this church to exist and function as God has designed it to, according to its call in Christ Jesus, members of the universal church are going to have to be united with others in the faith, adopting a specific and deferential mindset to do so. And Paul says this mindset is marked first by humility. Which means not prioritizing oneself over others. It's marked by gentleness. Sometimes translated here as meekness. Which is defined as the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights. Either in the presence of God or of men. This gentleness, meekness. It's marked by patience. Understanding that we all run the race at different paces. 
It's marked by bearing with one another. I mean, doesn't that just sound fun? This means not only do we bear one another's joys and burdens, but we bear with one another when we are sometimes being unbearable. And we do all of this foundationally in love, meaning we genuinely seek the good of each other, not because we're always lovable, but because God always loves us and wants to display that love to us through us. So we also learn that this identified group of believers is to be, verse 3, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This word eager in the Greek comes from a word that means make haste. This means we don't run from conflict or relational stress with one another. But we run to that which might threaten the relational way that we hold together as a church so that we can stop it. We eagerly run to fight for unity with one another. Now we don't eagerly fight with one another, but we eagerly fight for one another. Even if at times that means we must confront one another. We must be eager, not for ourselves and for our wants, but for unity with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And here in verse 4 through 6, Paul says, the local body of believers must have unity because foundationally it has unity. Look at this. Paul says there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Many New Testament scholars believe that this passage was actually an early confessional hymn that was sung by the church together, that we are one. We are in unity because we are knit together with one scarlet thread. We have one Lord and King, Jesus the Christ. And because we have one Lord, we have one faith focused on the singular object of our faith. And our one faith is expressed in one baptism that is the God-given signifier of our faith. And all of this depends on and is rooted in and is presided over by our one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. All of this is God's. And notice what it is that Paul says that defines and unites the local church. It's not, it's not one worship style, one income or education level, or one age or one political bent or one set of agreed upon and enjoyed activities. Look, we are not all going to agree on one worship style 
or have the same income or education level or be the same age or have the same political bent or agree upon the same activities. We are different people and different people are going to people differently. And that's why God's word says we must have humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another, being eager to maintain our unity. Because in these secondary earthly categories, we don't have unity. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually quite good. What we must keep paramount as a church, however, are the areas in which we are united. And it's on those things that we must continually focus and refocus and refocus that we are one body, united by one spirit, with one hope and one call. We, see, we serve one God, united in one faith, displayed in one baptism. We, as the church, are one. We have unity. But as Paul goes on to emphasize, we also celebrate and benefit from our diversity. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, now verses 8 through 10 are another sermon for another day. Okay, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So while we are united with this great Christ-centric spiritual unity, our daily embodied unity, or the, the ways that we interact and walk alongside one another, reflect a beautiful diversity in Christ's body. Paul says that grace was given each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this is not different amounts of saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. This grace is how God has graced us individually with how we are wired, how we're equipped, and how we are strengthened in order to strengthen the church. Romans 12, 6, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Kent Hughes calls these serving graces. God in Christ has gifted or graced us with diversity in our own bodies in order that through our diversity, we may build up our local body in diverse ways. And here in verse 7, Paul gives a picture of some of this diversity. He says that he gave the apostles. These were those early disciples who walked with Jesus, who were sent uniquely with the first-hand message of the gospel to build the church. He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. These were those who spoke the word of truth before we had it in our written form as we do today in the scriptures. He gave the evangelists, which comes from our word euangelion, which means gospel. Evangelist is a declare, a herald of good news. And he gave the shepherds and teachers. Now, in the Greek, this is one role, 
not two. This is the shepherds slash teachers. This is those elders, overseers, those pastors who we learn in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are defined, among other things, by their ability to teach. And what are they to teach? As Paul said, the whole counsel of God. And why are they to teach it? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That the Christians, the individual members of the local church body, may be equipped to go and do gospel work in their circles of influence for God's glory. That's the plan. And that is the goal. The primary purpose of our diversity is that we would be built up in a variety of ways into our common unity and function, which is to glorify God together in Christ. And it would be sent to diverse areas and circles of influence that we may take that gospel message and live that gospel life that others may know. That's why we are different. And this is a good thing. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We have purposed unity in our purposed diversity. But also, we do not have unity in our diversity just for unity and diversity's sake. The local church has a trajectory has a purpose. Look at this, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul says Christians are equipped and the body is built so that we all may attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And when that happens, the church is secure, both in doctrinal clarity, or what is true according to God's word, but also in doctrinal application or how we live out what is true according to God's word. Okay, but 
but mark Paul's words. The same ones he gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. The local church has enemies. There is an active, coordinated, spiritual effort to lure local churches and their individual members away from what is true. There are winds of false doctrine, untruths about God and the application of his word that that seek to move or to startle, to shift or even just steer us away. There are wolves in sheep's clothing who scheme to lure the church away from what God has clearly said in his word. Some maliciously, some self-servingly, and some quite ignorantly, not even knowing they're doing it. We have spiritual and physical forces literally hell-bent against us as the local church that work to break our unity and divert us from the mission of becoming mature in our faith and knowledge and representation of who Christ is. Church, we are in a war which we are not equipped to fight individually. Therefore, God equips us together with one another for the battle. We must be united together in our front to preserve the faith according to God's word for our good and for the good of others. The local church has responsibility. We see this in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how does the local church eagerly and actively fight together for gospel unity? Verse 15. It's by speaking the truth in love. This this phrase is incredibly significant. Speaking proactively, relationally, in gentle admonition, verbalizing, speaking the truth, not just our opinion. But God's word exclusively speaking the truth in love. This is that Greek agape love that is the same love that God has given to us in Christ. The church must continually and actively speak the truth in love. And what happens when we do? When we do, the church, verse 15 grows up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom, Paul says, okay, so he's going to bring this full circle, from the continual fount of Christ, 
who in and of himself resources the whole body to be joined and held together, stable, secure, and integrated by every joint with which it is equipped, every member, when each part is working properly, every member using their unique giftings to gently shape and encourage one another with gospel truth. When that happens, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what builds up the body? It's the body. Collectively, speaking truth to one another in love, in every way in which that body is uniquely and individually equipped, that is what makes the body of the church grow. You know, I have seen a thousand books and articles and resources on church growth. Okay, if you just try this strategy to reach lost people, or if you just implement this activity or program, or if you just do your worship in this way, I have read them all. And you know what I've determined? There is one strategy for local church growth, and it's this, speaking the truth in love. I have nothing for us better than that. Regularly, habitually, corporately and individually speaking and re-speaking the truth of the gospel to one another from an attitude and a heart of love Sunday after Sunday as the gathered church day after day around dinner tables and coffee shops speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ that is our church growth strategy. I say, but, but isn't that really simple? Yeah. Won't that sometimes be, be hard? Oh, definitely. But, but, but it's not measurable or, or quantifiable. Yeah, I know. It's not big or flashy. It's not an event we can pack the house with. It's, it's not going to boost our numbers. Probably not. Now, our ultimate growth goal isn't about numbers or finances, but our growth goal is growth in Christ-likeness. That's the biblical growth we need. Remember, as we read Last week, this quote from Mark Dever and Paul Alexander, a church is not a Fortune 500 company. It's not simply another nonprofit organization, nor is it a social club. In fact, a healthy church is unlike any organization that man has ever devised because man didn't devise it. Temporally, a church is a spiritually heavy thing to build, and it is designed for heavy relational use. It requires the strongest materials, and those materials must be placed in the correct load-bearing positions specified on the biblical blueprint so that structural integrity is built in. 
No matter how beautiful the facade, our structure will crumble if we build on a sandy foundation or with shoddy materials. The local church is God's design. And its purpose is to care for, to nurture, and to protect and grow individual disciples in community. And it's a beautiful thing. But it's not always done beautifully. We are a bunch of broken sinners being led by broken sinners who are going to break and sin alongside and against one another. We can resist the urge to speak truth. We can speak things other than the truth. We can speak truth, but not in a loving way. We can be anything but humble and gentle and patient and bearing and eager for unity. And when we do those things, we are not acting in the way that God desires and designed his local churches to act for his glory and for our good. But church, I want to I encourage us today. We also can do those things. Not because we're good enough, but because God has equipped us with everything we need to do so. He has given us himself, the spirit of God working in and among and through us. He has given us his word. We have the truth that defines and feeds us. He has given us each other, a defined community of rescued sinners seeking to trust and follow Jesus together. God has given the gift of the local church to the universal church in order that we might be the church, that we might trust and follow him and do so together. So I just want us to take a time together just to pray. If you would bow your head, close your eyes, if that's the best way for you to pray, let us thank God together for his gift of the local church. Just thank God wherever you are. Let's also confess to God and to each other if need be that we don't always do this well. We don't always do this perfectly. None of us can. No church is perfect this side of heaven. Let's confess our own parts in that. But let us also commit that we as members of a local church body will seek to do our part, seek to work properly in the way we trust and follow Jesus individually and in the way we speak the truth in love to each other together 
Let's commit to that, to be that kind of church. I ask that you pray for our local church that is Arrow Heights Baptist Church. Pray that we would be the type of church that God so desires the local church to be. Pray for our small groups where much of this life-on-life community happens. Pray that we will be effective and open and willing to be one with each other. Pray for our pastors that we would seek to humbly lead, feed, and protect together according to God's word. Pray for our deacons as they seek to serve the body in the ways that you have designed and equipped them to do. Then maybe before we end this time, identify a way personally Identify a way that you can be eager. Identify a way that you can be eager to preserve the unity, the gospel in the church, in the bond of peace. Dear Heavenly Father God, who is sovereign over the church, God, we are yours. Bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, equipped and led by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, we belong to you. God, we are so small. We're so frail in our humanity. God, I pray that you would use us and that you would guide us and that you would lead us as you desire to use and guide and lead your church. God, that we would just be very moldable, flexible in your hands as you are our potter. I pray that Arrow Heights Baptist Church would be a shining outpost 
of what you desire the church to be that displays the gospel brilliantly and shows who you are and what you do. God, I pray that not for our own glory. God, for your glory. I pray that for our sister churches here in Broken Arrow, other local churches, God, that you would shape and conform each of us to share the gospel clearly and unitedly and together that our community would know the truth. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We depend on you and we need you. And we thank you that we can come and pray to you because of you and what you have done. It's in your name I pray. Amen.